we create this duality that we judge certain experiences as being bad for us, particularly as a species, we are pain avoidant. And we tend to call that bad. And yet the growth to individuation as a mature adult involves the acceptance of the unpleasant experiences of life, not as being bad experiences, but as being opportunities for deeper connection with myself, with others, and with the world, as opportunities for a discovery of deeper meaning. And I'm not saying that we go looking for pain. We don't actually have to go looking for pain. We simply need to sit with ourselves and be open to what we're actually experiencing. Welcome to the second season of the Ikigai Project. I'm your host, Peter Nakamura. And in this season, we cover the topic of mental health and well-being. Uh, throughout the season, I'll feature conversations from people from all walks of life uh, around how they've nurtured their own mental health uh, and well-being, and also speaking with some experts about how they have helped their clients uh, perhaps overcome some of their past traumas and experiences to be the fulsome version of themselves. In this episode, we kick off a four-part series with Frank Kewen and Peter Stathakos, who are two Toronto-area-based psychotherapists, uh, to talk a little bit about what psychotherapy is, um, a little bit about their origin stories and, and how they got into this line of work. And we start to tease out some of the things that they notice within their clients um, in helping them through their journey and the healing process. Uh, it's a great conversation. Peter and Frank are just very genuine and um, forthright with what they've seen and experienced in their practices. So I think you'll get a, a good sneak peek into what what the area of psychotherapy looks like and how it might perhaps apply to your life. So I hope you enjoy. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Peter and Frank. Peter, we've been talking about this for a while now. I think uh, last couple of months of doing something uh, where we get to talk a little bit about psychotherapy. And you mentioned Frank as somebody that uh, you really respect and admire and, and see as a, a peer in, in this in this space. So I was definitely intrigued when you invited Frank on board. And Frank, it was a pleasure getting to know you. Oh, thank you. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, just to get to... Um, yeah, uh, you know, know what you do and, and how you think about the space of psychotherapy. So thank you for making the time. You're welcome. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. A few years ago, I actually changed the name of my business from uh, and Associates Mental Health to Amazing Space Center for Wellness and Psychotherapy. Nice. And my own growth as a therapist, recognizing that what we do in therapy is we create this amazing space and then healing shows up. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Thank you. It's interesting hearing that because the name of my practice went from Integrated Life. The website still exists, integratedlife.ca. You can find me there. But I transitioned into Peter Stathakos and Associates uh, in part because an idea of an integrated life seemed too distant for people to connect with. Uh, a lot of the time when we're talking about psychotherapy, they come in with like a sliver of their life that they think they have uh, an area that they need to draw attention to and don't realize how that one part is affecting other parts or it's possible that other parts are causing that part. Mm. 
like, like using the word part, clearly. But it seemed distant or foreign for people to grasp an idea of an integrated life. That's why I went the opposite direction from Frank in the construction of uh, how people can better access therapists of our quality. And, and I think as I listen to Peter say that, one of the things that I listen for, uh, among many, many things, is the, the kind of principle that the problem is never the problem. Mm. So someone comes to me with that sliver of their life that they've identified it, this is the problem, and I need to fix this. And that's a great place for us to start. For me as a therapist, I need to be very aware that the problem is never the problem. There's always a lot more going on underneath the surface. Right. And if we stay with that sliver, we end up rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic <laughs> rather than changing the direction of the ship. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And, and prevent yourself from hitting that iceberg down Absolutely. the road. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, I love that. And I, and I definitely want to get into more of that idea of how do you go from this sliver of, you know, apart maybe the symptom or the challenge right. you're facing into yes. the whole being. Um, but before we do, I'm just curious to get to know both of your origin stories. This is wow. um, with the, the Ikigai project. Uh, the part of part of the, the, the enjoyment I get is understanding, you know, what what drives purpose and, and how did maybe some of your past experience impact where you are today? So you know, maybe both of you can kind of just give us a bit of the origin story of what, what sure. brought you into the world of psychotherapy. That's a great question. Do you want to go first? Do you, <laughs> want, do you want me to die? No, I'll, I'll go first. Okay. Um, I love the, it feels like I'm the, the client or the patient in this, uh, in this podcast, in this discussion, and I'm enjoying that. So I'll go straight in that I feel like I played this role of psychotherapist largely, like a large part of my life. Uh, my mother is a paranoid schizophrenic. Uh, that resulted in a lot of caregiving. But uh, the Center of Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto, um, which specializes in major psychiatric disorders, did studies on children like me um, in the 1980s. And it discovered that 17% uh, of us, because of the environment or being in the presence of someone with a major psychiatric disorder, develop something called hyperempathy or hyperanticipation skills, hyperintuition skills. And I didn't know that I was, uh, I was unique with being able to know what other people were thinking or feeling. And it lended to naturally uh, using these skills for good in the service of others. Um, in some sense, it's like a replacement figure for my mother. Right. Um, but I didn't set out in life to be a therapist. My first degree is in business, mm -hmm. uh, from the Shilk School of Business. And uh, I didn't like the direction that uh, the professors or the mentors through that career were directing me. Mm -hmm. um, I felt the using some of those skills was opportunistic, let's say, in a type of negotiation. But uh, how that plays out in a therapy practice is I know what it's like to work a different job than sitting in a chair and listening to people. And most people that come in here come from, they're working in the business world. So it gives me new insights to, to connect. 
Mm. Um, but I was driven uh, in particular to work with difficult situations. Uh, people that would be labeled by other therapists or they themselves feel like they're not fixable. Mm. Um, I enjoy the, the risk or the encounter with someone's vulnerability because it challenges my own. Mm. A lot of therapists that I've encountered through agency work or uh, conferences or just meetings, they like to operate at a distance. Mm. Um, it was Carl Jung who was describing that the real work of a therapist is to uh, put yourself in the vulnerable place to be struck by poison or get burned by fire. Mm. Um, Cause that's the only way that you can help the person. Um, so I, I enjoy the challenge to myself because it parallels the challenge that I'm asking clients to do. Um, at this stage of my career, not everything is as challenging depending on who's coming in, but it's nice that I could draw on lots of experience of um, drawing on my courage as well as the clients Yeah. to have the outcomes that uh, they desire. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Well, yeah, yeah. I'd like to continue my individual therapy <laughs> session at this point. <laughs> That's yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, Frank, what about yourself? Um, it's a great question. And uh, I'll start it with a very um, kind of uh, ordinary response, which is um, I came to being a psychotherapist uh, largely from the experience of crawling through my own shit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. uh, discovering that there's so much more possible for me than who I was told I was mm. in my world. And not by anybody's ill intent, but the impact of early childhood trauma created an idea of myself that was protective of a vast room full of pain, mm. loneliness, and isolation. And it's wonderful to be on the other side of that and to be able to offer to others um, some amazing space where all of that is welcome and the idea of themselves is not who they are. Mm. And to begin to stay curious about who they actually are and what life really is for them. So that's, and I could tell you about my it's a second career for me. I was a high school educator. I was a high school chaplain and counselor and a high school principal uh, before mm, I wow. went I back and got licensed as a psychotherapist and started my own practice. And it, it's all very related. I don't see them as um, oppositional careers at all or, uh, or like a major right turn. What I do now is, um, is just simply more personal and precise. Mm. Yeah, and there's a, for me, a deep reverence when another human being invites me into a place of their terror and their insecurity yeah. with a hope that I will stay. Yeah, I yeah. love that. So it sounds like for both of you, there's a theme of having had trauma in the past, yes. whatever that looks like specifically that was 
what propelled you into self-knowledge going into psychotherapy and maybe imparting that knowledge and experience to to others and, and hopefully making a difference in their lives um why do you guys keep on doing it what what keeps you like what why is this such an important part of who you are and and uh your your purpose in your life well that's that i love that question uh, uh I, a couple of my brothers um work in commercial real estate and have their own businesses and, and have often said to me over the years, you know, Frank, like, what are you doing as a, a high school principal? Like, the ceiling for what you can earn, given your skills. Like, why aren't you out there selling apartment buildings at right. malls or <laughs> doing yeah. that? What right. do you do? You know, what do you, there's only so much money you can make as a psychotherapist. Uh, and yet, doing that other kind of work gets them up in the morning and they're passionate about that, but I'm not. I'm passionate about the encounter with another human being mm -hmm. and being able to be uh, a facilitator of growth for them mm -hmm. and inviting them into an unknown place that I passionately believe exists for them, mm -hmm. that is attainable and that has uh, value. Um, sure, I'd like to make more money, but I love doing what I do because it... Um, um, because it feels authentic for me, mm. yeah. yeah, and alive. Uh, I share a lot of similar sentiment to Frank. Something that uh, drives me is I see myself using this role as a type of artist. Mm. Some people paint, some people create music, some people are exceptional at uh, sports. Yeah. Um, the platform for my creativity is in the workings of uh, the therapeutic relationship and the skills that I can draw on and the tools that I will use to try and match the particular specific person with the particular challenge uh, to match their temperament, to match their the wholeness of their being and there's an artistry to it yeah um, that I really enjoy like a let's say outside of the therapy room the world is rather standardized every city's got grids um, office buildings look the same people dress similarly in the therapy room um, people want to carry those things with them in into the room mm -hmm. they know that they can't well, that they know it's in their interest to take them off, but they don't want to. Mm. So the artistry is in the uh, creative exchange that happens with both people through the process. And I, I enjoy the, the diversity or the uniqueness of each encounter. And that's not just like each person, but like throughout the time that is spent or let's say session to session. Mm -hmm. uh, a different person is walking in you know you could walk in one day we spend some time together life happens you come back a lot of parts are the same but some parts are different so it's always a, a new experience it's almost like uh, having mm. an opportunity to keep painting the same painting there's no Picasso right or there's no Mona Lisa and then it's done and you leave it and then it goes into a museum and it's done for life um, but the ongoing 
creative encounter is uh, what uh, I really enjoy. Yeah, I love that. And, and that's what I loved. Uh, so full disclosure, I worked with you, Peter, for a year and a half. Um, and still occasionally we pop in and have conversations. Um, and what I love about you, and I think generally this is held in psychotherapy, is you don't have to be fated to be a certain person. I think it was Jung that said, you know, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. And through our work, Peter, of just talking about our, my, my childhood, um, I got a sense of the unconscious that was living in my brain, but that wasn't the whole thing. Just understanding that is not the full journey. It's actually what do you do with that knowledge and then beyond and how you describe with your clients, you know, every time they pop in, they're a different person and you compel and push them to grow. That's the purpose. It sounds like of what psychotherapy really is. Uh, yeah, well, I, I don't know if I feel like I compel anyone. I feel like it's done naturally or organically. Um, sometimes there's a reminder of, sometimes there's despair. Oh my God, I can see how awful my childhood was. Before I thought I was just messed up. Now I see it's, you know, despite my parents' good intentions, uh, I'm even more fucked up and I see it as kind of their fault, but I don't know how to fix it because I've tried everything on my own. Uh, I've talked to friends or maybe I buried it and was like, I'm just going to earn money uh, or I'm going to bury it in substances or could be behaviors. It could just be sleeping around. It could be any... A uh, host of ways of trying to cope with it, but what happens in, uh, let's say, in mine and Frank's practices, which I don't think happens in every therapy practice, because one of my mm -hmm. motivators is actually the fact that there's too many, uh, like the quality of therapies. I would I would describe it as low, right? Um, and I feel like people like me and Frank need to raise the bar and be there for people who go to other therapists, and. Um, don't get the results that they're hoping for, evidenced in their quality of their life improving. Um, mm -hmm. So often uh, knowing, like when Frank was talking about being there for a journey and him being uh, also like a role model or example of, hey, I was there, I moved, I progressed here. Um, like there's a vulnerability that Frank was describing. Mm -hmm. um, or the way someone could effectively use their own story in a therapeutic context hmm. to be an example of you don't need to be lost in this despair. There is a way out. It's just going to take some courage to do things differently. Hmm. And the person will draw on their own sense of courage because the pain of staying where they are is too much. Right. Um, you know, death's not an option or suicide is not an option or continuing the life that they have is not an option therefore new is required hmm. so that that newness doesn't come from the therapist like you know uh encouraging or offering candy or bribing uh you know I'll give you a gold star at the end of the session right um it comes from within and there's an intrinsic value that the person would be pursuing 
which would be you know witnessed in the outside real tangible world right like the relationships will improve they can do things that they're passionate about that they um, ignored yeah for years one of the ways um, that I would describe that is in uh, kind of the gestalt of a therapy session we change the past in the present mm. to create a new future the, our perception of our past creates our predictive history mm. and we project that onto our future. When we have an encounter in a therapeutic session where the past that we predict doesn't show up, something else shows up. Right. When we expect judgment and we receive unconditional acceptance and regard, there's a new option for our future. Right. And I don't, I don't have to share the story of my trauma with every one of my clients, because I am the story. Mm. Their experience of me is the story of my own post-traumatic growth. So I don't have to share with them the details. I share with them the space. So there's yeah. like a faith being put into the person. Yes. Right. Yeah. That we trust them. Yeah. And that they too should trust themselves, that everything will be okay. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. It's almost role modeling that behavior in a way. Yeah, it's. I, w I wouldn't call it. Um, I wouldn't call it role modeling. I would call it being. Hmm. Right? Being the future that the client doesn't believe is possible for them, hmm. and being that future in the present. Right. Yeah. It's all very therapy talk. Eh? Yeah. Well, <laughs> and and this is great because um, part of what this series of conversations I'm hoping does is uncover uh, a little bit of what psychotherapy actually is mm. because there's a lot of baggage that comes with the word. Yes. And so really understanding what it's about and how it can help a, a listener, you know, that's curious about this, um, realize it might be helpful and, and potentially access the help if they're looking for it. Uh, it's the objective. So do you want to get into more of that? Um, what does an actual session look like? But before we do, taking a, a step back at, at the picture of where we are today as a society, um, Frank, you, you know, you were you're talking about earlier um, before we started recording, um, but the idea of, of death by despair becoming yes. more of a common um, occurrence phenomena in our society today, yeah. uh, where anxiety, loneliness, depression is something that um, just we encounter a lot more of yes. seemingly uh, why do you think this idea of death by despair has has kind of come up more recently sure what's causing it um, so a little bit about it uh, so the the concept of death by despair is um, a, a researched phenomena of um, uh, particular to white men in the United States who hold a a particular demographic of being, say, over the age of 40 and having very um, right-wing ideological beliefs and um, dying early deaths, either through direct suicide or passive suicide, substance abuse, alcoholism, workaholism, and it's the... Republicanism. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> <laughs> and it, that may be a contributing factor. Right, right. <laughs> right. So uh, this, the despair is because of the distance 
between their idea of themselves mm -hmm. and their experience of their life. And so they feel constantly this um, deeply unconscious sense of failure, mm -hmm. of disappointment, of being ripped off or shafted, and that life is not, does not have the value that mm -hmm. it's supposed to have, that somehow I've been cheated of something. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly not um, limited to uh, the demographic that I talked about. Right. It crosses yeah. all kinds of demographics. We we'll just see it there. I think that the, um, you know, your question about why do I think we are there, I would say that um, this is not an entirely new phenomena in our history as human beings. Mm. That whenever our, our culture has moved into a place of away from community and towards isolation, we experience despair. Yeah. Yeah. What makes living in 21st century society more, um, uh, yeah, adapt, adaptable is not the right word, but causes that type of loneliness to, to happen? Okay. Um, so that's a huge question. Yeah. There's <laughs> yeah. And I, and I like the question. I think it's a really important question to explore. So what, what makes living in the 21st century, what, what makes us more vulnerable to isolation and to despair? Right. Right. Yeah. So I uh, recently finished a, a book that I love. I'm actually going to reread it because uh, it has a very provocative title called Everything is Fucked, a book about hope. Great. And yeah. it's a wonderful book, and it really is about hope. And one of the central premises that the author begins with, and I think it's important to our discussion, is the uncomfortable truth that we create lives structured to avoid the uncomfortable truth. Hmm. The uncomfortable truth is that we are not in control of anything. And yet we create lives, we create relationships, we create families, we create occupations, we create fantasies, we create ideas of ourselves that are based on a premise or a hope that we can be in control. Mm -hmm. And when we, f when we hold on to that hope, we are constantly disappointed because the reality of our experience is that we are not in control. Right. And we think unconsciously that somehow there's something wrong with us. Right? Yeah. I've been cheated in my life because I'm not in control. <laughs> right. And I have this illusion that there is control. Right? Uh, so I, I think that that's more the kernel of it. I don't think it's simply a 21st century phenomena. Hmm. I think it's a, a, a human phenomena that has been in, in existence ever since the beginning of time. Ever since, as human beings, we um, encountered this uncomfortable truth. Mm -hmm. And when we encounter that uncomfortable truth in our aloneness, it is terrifying. Mm. And it is unlivable. Right. It leads to despair. When we encounter that uncomfortable truth with another human being, who doesn't lie to us about it, and who simply says, yes, and I'm here with you in this. Mm. The terror diminishes. Our expectation of ourselves that we must control diminishes. And we have the opportunity to live with the uncomfortable truth, rather than create a false life 
to deny it. Mm. To expand what Frank's talking about in a slightly different direction, I guess the uh, the yang or the ying of the control yeah. component is a power component. Yes. Where when someone's feeling so uncomfortable or uh, you know, Frank was discussing it in terms of wanting more control. The way it mm. plays out is through power. They want to have more power in their lives. Mm. You know, that's why all these, uh, the books that are like bestsellers are like, you know, seven steps to whatever, right. five steps to whatever. You know, read this book, do these five things. You have this, um, these shortcuts by trying to give people the idea that they have power. Um, one, it's fast and urgent, cheap, like, you know, a book is not that expensive. You don't even have to read it. Like you can have your device read it to you. Um, no one's going to hold you accountable to it, but you're going to just take these, encouraging you to take these big, bold risks, uh, despite not having the tools to do them. And who knows where the target even is. Um, if you want to look at like the, the smaller version of this, like how often do people feel out of control, isolated, lonely, bam, Tinder, bam, Facebook, bam, I'm going to message this person, whoever it is. Instagram. Right. Yeah. It could just be messaging your, someone that you care about during moments when you're actually just alone, where you end up having this text conversation and then when you come face to face, you got nothing left. Mm. Well, you know, this type of isolation, yeah, there's a technological component, but there's also an impulse control component. Mm. Hey, I'm okay. I don't need to go message someone right now about this. Or I could talk to my friend about it later when I'm going to grab a, a beer with him. I don't need to tell, unload the story on him right now. This type of instant gratification. And then when you show up together at the bar, there's, this, yeah, that's, that was, uh, Quite the story you texted me. Mm. Yeah. Then this type of ideal, you know, technology is thought to bring people to close, closer. Yeah. But really it's damaging, um, if, you know, when I'm not an anti-technology person, but the w way a lot of people use it is to relieve this inner despair by reaching out for any type of contact. And then they end up in blowing their load of content mm. through this device. You know, <laughs> great analogy. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, good. a lot of people are going to porn yeah. um, to relieve their tension and then, you know, try and connect with life again. And it's harder. Yeah. But it, it's really that type of impulse control thinking of, OK, what is what do I actually need? It sucks for me to sit with what just happened. I'm going to delay telling this story like, you know, go back a century ago. You know, you're you're going to be talking to the woods before you, you're going to encounter people right. or you're going to be more, the people that you want to encounter may not be there. You're going to have to wait. Uh, you don't even have to go that long ago, like more like 50 years ago, mm -hmm. 30 years ago. Uh, there would be more patience and more sitting with oneself than there is today. Right. There, there's so much there that we can unpack and, yes. um, uh, I, I appreciate you, Peter. Uh, giving specific examples there of I think we can all relate to using you know Instagram or Facebook or or just texting someone to feel that momentary sense of connection but it's really 
it's not at a deeper level. It's, it's just very superficial and skimming the surface. Um, what, what resonated to me, uh, Frank, as, as you were talking is this kind of weird relationship of this sense of control that we want in our lives. But when we don't have control, the sense of victimhood that we feel like yes. life is somehow turning against us, right. even though much of life is outside of our sphere of, of influence. Um, in fact, all of it is not, right. not our sphere of influence. It's outside our sphere of control. Right. It's within our sphere of influence. Right. And in influence um, takes place control. in the now. Yeah. Right? And control um, tends to be a future event. Right. Even if that future is just a moment from now or a second from now, the draw to control is this draw to a false security. Mm. Right? And when we can, and sometimes it's important to be in control. Absolutely. You know, when the fire alarm goes, it's good for somebody to be in control right. to deal with that particular moment. When being in control is our only place of security, yeah. then we are in a constant state of disappointment and failure, mm. leading to despair. Mm. Because a part of ourselves knows that it's not control that we need, it's connection. Well, uh, I, I don't know if I agree with all that. Like there's elements of, like I do have some control. I, I know how I'm going to respond to questions. Yeah. Um, but I, a lot of the things that I believe I control are just happening automatically. My heart is beating right now. I don't control that. Right. You know, some people might say, you know, you might get into a logic argument. Well, you don't stop it from beating. Right. Uh, which is true, but the fact is the heart is doing its thing. Yeah. What it was created to do. So it's like in an existential place, it's functioning. I'm breathing, I'm not monitoring it. So there's, like at a biological level, even, you know, I don't, my heart may stop and it's not me saying stop. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that's an aspect of control that's taken for granted. Um, uh, I think when we're talking about uh, control, w the things that we control are kind of influenced by, or let's say when we're talking about decision making, it's yeah. influenced by way more than what we believe. So like there's a black cloud over when we start talking about self-determination. Mm -hmm. Well, he... I say I want this, therefore I should get it. Well, why do you want that? Uh, it just is better for me, or this product says it's better than the other. But there's way more factors than that. It could be, it makes me feel good to spend money. Hmm. Or I'm accustomed to debt, and I want to return to that place. I came from poverty, I'll return to it. Right. Could be, I'm angry, so fuck it. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of factors that are unconscious that are driving our decisions, which in a modern context is sought to be self-determination. Right. You know, or like uh, the assisted suicide people. Um, I don't want to live anymore. I'm not impaired. Yes, you are. Mm. Uh, 
there's nothing about you that says that you don't want to live except the words that are coming out of your mouth. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're trying to kill yourself, but in unconscious ways, or why do you need government permission? Just go do it. Clearly you're pissed off and want like some type of societal acceptance of you wanting to kill yourself. Yeah. Um, as if you're too cowardly to just do it yourself. Um, so like that whole discussion, like control power, it's like the, the government decides whether I live or don't. Right. And like, let's if we're going to take that type of case example, but back to this idea of like control, we... Do we have some, we have some control because we do have effect on the world? The question that I would raise is how impaired is it? How much is that aligned with who we are? In the context of the relationships that we have in the society that we are a part of, uh, like self-determination is not just me and there's nothing else. It's about where am I in when you're talking about connection? Who am I in relation to this world and to the people in this place that I live, in this neighborhood, with the talents that I have? How will they be, how will I choose to use them in society and how will everyone receive mutual benefici uh, beneficiality, um, like win-wins? Yeah. So like the connective pieces, you know, I just wanted to expand on it to, because I agree with that. I guess I believe we have a little bit more control than zero. Um, but it, a lot of it's going to depend on self-work, yeah. self-knowledge, what kinds of garbage did we encounter in life, right. um, where we gradually given the appropriate developmental tools. Yeah. But most people that enter a therapy, uh, room, my life was great. My parents were great. Um, they did their best. Yeah. They loved me unconditionally right um there were no strings attached uh when they were loving me uh, but i have this you know problem and it's nobody else's fault but mine mm -hmm. you know the major distortions of their own history and reality uh which would make them think they you know one all their problems are theirs but it would probably undermine their sense of power or control mm -hmm. Or maybe inflate it. I got myself into this mess, therefore I can get myself out of it. Right. Well, hold on. It, it was a village that contributed to your problems. Right. Um, you made your bed, now lie in it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you, Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Like, in, in no one's healing, from a therapeutic practice perspective, uh, have I seen it done purely in isolation. Yeah. Never. We heal in community, mm. and that, and, you know, I think our first um, encounter with community is the community of ourself, mm. and then it's and then it's community with another, and then with a group, and then with a larger society, and a, an encounter with ultimate meaning is an experience of community. Mm. Right? I think that the uh, you know uh, at the monk who lives in solitude can be experiencing a great deal more community than I might be experiencing in this very kind of web of life that I have. Right, right. right? Yeah. Well, that, that's interesting because if we were to do a thought experiment and, you know, suppose you become the only human being in, on Earth, yes. um, 
the sense of maybe anxiety or loneliness disappears in a way because there's nobody else to compete with or feel lonely about because you're the only human being in the world um and what what's you know interesting then the corollary to that would be then all of the problems and all of the good stuff that happens in our life is actually because of other people we feel loneliness because we're around other people we feel joy because we're around other people and the sense of community at least for me this is just me talking sure, yeah. here yeah, <laughs> yeah it could be completely wrong and go <laughs> take us down a rabbit hole that really doesn't um we're on an exploration it's all good yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but it really is like all good and bad things that happen in our life could come from could it comes from interpersonal relationships and if we're not paying attention to those relationships then we're not paying attention to, to what is happening in in life for us right and I, I would you know add to that that um all experiences of our life come from our intrapersonal relationship, our relationship with ourself in a dynamic experience of others. So intrapersonal and interpersonal. And even our judgment of what happens as good and bad comes from a dualistic notion. Mm. Right? That stuff is either good or it's bad. And that serves a certain purpose. Oftentimes though, I think in our culture, we use good and bad in terms of human relationships mm. when we really mean pleasant and unpleasant, painful and not painful, mm. satisfying and not satisfying. And so we create familiar? these... Unfamiliar? Unfamiliar. Right? We create this duality that we judge certain experiences as being bad for us, particularly as a species. We are pain avoidant. And we tend to call that bad. And yet the growth to individuation as a mature adult involves the acceptance of the unpleasant experiences of life, not as being bad experiences, mm. but as being opportunities for deeper connection with myself, with others, and with the world, as opportunities for a discovery of deeper meaning. And I'm not saying that we go looking for pain, we don't actually have to go looking for pain. Mm. We simply need to sit with ourselves and be open to what we're actually experiencing rather than judging it as good or bad. Thanks so much for listening. Special thank you to Hugh for the theme music. You can check them out at hearhue.bandcamp.com. If you'd like to learn more about the Ikigai Project, you can check out my weekly blog at ikigai.blog. And that's it for now. Take good care, everyone.